Today's guest hails from Toronto, Canada, and is the author of the epic fantasy series The Melison, A Book of the Fallen, a 10-novel series that clocks in at just around 3 million words and has found international acclaim selling over 1 million books worldwide. Based on the story world, he co-created for tabletop gaming sessions with friend and colleague Ian C. Esselmont. Together, they've now penned 18 novels and 5 novellas. Noted for its complex plotting, vast world-building, and countless multi-layered characters, Glenn Cook called the series a masterwork of imagination that may be the high-water mark of epic fantasy. Stephen Donaldson himself described the Melazon Book of the Fallen as the best fantasy series of recent times. Easily a favorite within the Grimdark community, his fans are known for having a fierce loyalty and zealous devotion, garnering a read-through of the entire series hosted by the good folks at Tor.com, not to mention a Malazan wiki site containing over 3,600 pages of content and a Reddit community bolstering over 5,000 active members. His latest novel, Fall of Light, book two of the Carcanus trilogy, drops on April 26th. Truly a writer who puts the epic in epic fantasy, a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, a husband, a father, and Skyping in from his home in lovely Victoria, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Stephen Erickson to the show. Stephen, thanks for joining us, sir. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, we are beyond excited to have you on the show. Like I said, the Grimdark community is a huge fan of yours. Um, anytime we post anything on the Facebook or whatever, people go crazy for it. And uh, you, you do have fierce fans, and, and we are fierce fans as, uh, of yours as well. And we're uh, overjoyed to get you on the show today and uh, talk about your latest novel, which is Fall of Light. It's the sequel to Forge of Darkness. For folks who may not be caught up with this new trilogy, maybe tell us what readers can expect from Fall of Light. Well, first of all, it's the first trilogy um, I, I've written. Um, if you think of the, the ten book series, the, uh, the Malazan Book of the Fallen, each one was kind of a standalone novel that started to link up towards uh, the latter half of the series. And so I, I hadn't actually experienced um, the middle book of a trilogy, but I, you know, I've heard from other writers that it can be a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge, primarily because you're, you're bridging a storyline. And... Um, that was probably one of the main struggles I had. I, I had two elements to uh, the novel in terms of storylines, and um, pulling one up alongside the other um, turned out to be something of a challenge. And so this is the longest I've taken on any book. It's been over three years, I guess. And um, in, in terms of uh, yeah, in terms of the story, it is well a continuation of Forge of Darkness, but also uh, an introduction to some uh, of some new characters as well. And and hopefully um, people will be forgiving enough in the sense that it is a bridge between the first book and, and the last. And um, a lot of uh, shit's going to come down on the, in the last book. So I'm setting up a lot of things here. Excellent, excellent. Would you say the Carcanus trilogy would be a good entry point for new readers who maybe haven't dived into the 10-book series? I have no idea. Um, one of the things is the language is uh, it's different. Um, maybe it's... Maybe it, that is more obvious to me than it is to readers, but um, I am I am sort of uh, approaching this in, in a different in a different sort of mindset as a writer, and and so the language has become much more um, prevalent as sort of a main driving force uh, in the writing. Um, whereas the Malazan Book of the, the Fallen is is very plot driven. It's very um, it, it pushes you forward in the sense of events that are occurring and. So I don't know if, I mean, I've heard from some people who've stepped into uh, my writing through Forge of Darkness, and they seem to be okay with that. Um, but again, uh, it is very much a, uh, a trilogy that drops in information that 
readers of the of the ten book series uh, will you know light bulbs will go on in their head when when they see certain things occur, and it will be explaining a lot of elements that have not been explained quite deliberately in in the series that Cam and I wrote. And you mentioned three years to get this one penned. What what do you think was caused the length and time to to get this well, on paper? Steve Donaldson talks about um, life block as opposed to writer's block. Mm. And life block is, is basically where everything else that goes on in your life gets in the way of, of the writing. And so I, I'm very sort of, um, I have a window in which I write during the day, and a window in the sense of that's my creative peak, period. And it usually runs from about 1 o'clock to like 1 p.m. to maybe 4. But um, I've been finding that there have been so many things sort of required of me on a daily basis, um, not for any particular reason of extra complexity or anything, but it just started getting in the way. And so it, it was harder to find and carve out the time in which um, I needed to, to write this thing. Plus, I had uh, a novel called Willful Child that was wanting to be written and was sort of chewing away at me for, well, I've been thinking about the book for about 10 years. And uh, so I finally sat down and wrote that. So I took a break in, in the middle of uh, Fall of Light to write um, Willful Child. Um, and so that slowed things up as well. And then I, I realized that I really hadn't taken a break from the 10 book series. And um, I was just tired, I think. And, and I needed a vacation. And so I started taking more breaks in that respect. Yeah, I imagine writing a 10 book series would you kind of be like, wow, OK, <laughs> time, time to take a rest for a little while. Yeah, it really felt that way. And it felt when I finished the series, because it, it took about 12 years to write the 10 books, uh, with novellas thrown in as well, I, I could have dropped dead the next day and I would have been quite content. Uh, so it, it, there, was, there was very much um, a real feeling of, you know, what next? Where do I find my energy for, for the next project? And, and what's going to be driving me in terms of ambition? And it took a while to refuel. And there's no doubt about it. And I probably gave myself too little time uh, in between start, starting Forge of Darkness and uh, the completion of, of the Ten Book series. Um, and I probably think, you know, I look back on it now, and yeah, I think more time would have been a lot, uh, probably better for me. In, in one interview, you mentioned uh, that you feel people will either really love your series or may not be their cup of tea. Do you still kind of feel that way after you've completed the entire series and you're now working on a new trilogy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, it's a hard thing to explain. I, I ran into similar problem way back in, in, in Iowa. Um, I came out of a, an undergraduate writing program here at the University of Victoria. And the Canadian style of literature is a very different beast from um, the American style. And I know when I arrived in, in Iowa, and I remember putting in my first chapter to a novel in the workshop and within the first two weeks, and um, my instructor was Frank Conroy, who was running the program at the time. And I think he started to wonder why I was even in the program at all. And it has to do with, with the approach I take to, to writing, which I very much learned from you know, my mentors in, in, in uh, Victoria. And so I, I'm, I'm obsessed with subtext, and I'm obsessed with, with what language can do um, on the page and how it can manipulate the psychological state of the reader. Um, but at the time, in Iowa anyways, there was a real sort of movement or attitude that was fairly Carver-esque. So in other words, everybody wanted to be Raymond Carver, they just hadn't lived his life. And so it, it, was, it was a style of writing that was surficial. It, it was smooth, it was glib, but there really was no subtext. And so my writing really baffled uh, a lot of 
uh, my instructors uh, at Iowa. Oddly enough, not not some of the my fellow students. Um, I mean, Chris Offit, for example, is, um, we ended up becoming very good friends, and and he's a Kentucky writer, and and he's in the news right now because he's just done a, a terrific, I guess, biography of his father, who who wrote both science fiction and fantasy, and uh, by the name of Andrew J. Offit, who also wrote uh, porn and made a living writing porn. And so the book's out now. It's it's. Um, I've read some excerpts and talked to Chris, and it, it it sounds like an absolute blast. But by and large, um, I was a fish out of water in in Iowa, and I think that sense of subtext has stayed with me. Um, and most of my writing employs a lot of that. And it can make it can make a beginning reader unnervous, if you will, or potentially uneasy because they have a sense that things are going on and and yet the you know the, the flags have been raised but we haven't seen the, the the conclusions or the um resolutions to these things and it takes a long time in that series uh, it takes 10 books for, you know for some of those uh, resolutions to come through so yeah i think it's it is a problematic and, and a challenging series do you still find yourself using that subtext to, even with this new series yeah yeah uh, i i it's become so habitual for me. It's it's I can't imagine. Well, actually, I can imagine. Now that I think about it, um, I'm working on a project right now, which is in, written in a completely different style. And it's I'm basically taking a short break and um, plunging away on this uh, a science fiction novel. And the style is is very terse and very sort of straightforward. And, and what they used to call Windex, which means that the language is kind of see through. It's uh, you don't notice it. And so. Apparently, I can write other styles, but for whatever reason, the fantasy world, the Malazan world, and its history is a kind of world that demands in me a particular style of writing. And so that's what I'm using for it. One thing I wanted to talk about, it's a, a big forum of uh, your fans. It's called Malazan Empire, which is uh, kind of the go-to place for fans of your series. The, the fan base site, the MalazanEmpire.com. And they have a Facebook page also, which I believe is connected to the, the forum. Right. I was looking through the, the forum, and one of the most popular threads that I found was was called the Badass List of Badass Characters. So <laughs> that really interested me because I'm up to Memories of Ice in the series right now. Oh, so right. I'm, a, I'm on the third book. Mm-hmm. And the, ser- the series does have a lot of these kind of, you know, really powerful, cool badass sort of characters and this list it, it lists the badass osity i guess in ascending order so the most badass and then it goes down the list so i'm i'm personally a fan of badasses so i was wondering who would you who would you rank as your top badass in the overall series most badass of all the characters that's kind of hard because when you write the characters i mean yeah okay you you give them specific traits that make them, you know, useful or powerful or um, uh, skilled or talented or whatever. But because you're not just doing sort of comic book style characters, you actually have to concentrate on the humanity and the human aspects of those characters. So it becomes more difficult to pull them at a distance, uh, which I think you need for that kind of badass uh, notion um, to really grab a, a reader. So interestingly, if I think of a badass character, I think of um, a character that initially, anyways, um, when I first uh, experienced this character, it was through Cam running a game and introducing that character. And he was a character I'd written up years before named Ralak Nam. He's an assassin in uh, Darushistan. 
But um, at the time, I, I was with another, uh, I guess, a, a group of people, and we were all sort of in this game world in Darujistan and knew nothing about, um, well, everybody else knew nothing about the history or the storylines that Cam and I had gained. So this was a subsequent uh, campaign. And Cam just sort of described this person that we met outside the walls of the city uh, who'd come in from the south uh, uh, across the desert. And just his description of this guy, who he didn't give us a name to start with, was just just fantastic. It was serious badass. And, you know, we, we were low-level GURPS characters, and um, he scared the crap out of us. <laughs> And yet it was Relic Nom, and, and that was such a cool thing that, that um, he gave me sort of another person's perspective of, of uh, a very sort of um, skilled and talented and dangerous character. And that was much more effective uh, or affecting on me than any character that I had created. So I suspect in that respect, um, Cam's characters um, are the ones I would think of as, as badass characters. And, so Temper comes to mind from uh, Night of Knives as probably the most badass of all the characters. That may surprise a few people, but there it is. Well, on, on this list, they list Torvald Nam as the number one. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then Karsa Orlong is number two. Mm-hmm. I, I hear I hear a lot about Karsa Orlong throughout my adventures on the internet. I haven't got to him in the series yet, okay. but I, I hear so much good stuff about him in various ways. Actually, you have. You just don't know it yet. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> There's a little uh, nugget for me. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of rolling up characters, uh, do you still get a chance to game often these days, Stephen? No, no. And what I've, I've tried a couple times um, in the last few years, and what I find is it, it draws from the same sort of creative energy that writing does. And so if I'm, if I'm working on a novel, um, I've, got, I've got no creative energy for running a game. And if I'm running the game, then the novel suffers. And so if it's a, you know, a contest between the two, invariably I, I put the gaming away. Although I did play a bit um, in, a, in a, I guess this is the latest version of, of D&D uh, with a group of people uh, as just a character. And that was okay. That was all right. Um, but running a game, I don't know if I have the, the, the energy left uh, to do that. Uh, you have to remember that when we were gaming, for the most part, uh, Cam and I... We were just we were still students. We were still doing our field work in archaeology and, and, and basically pissing around all winter. So we had time. <laughs> we had time and we had energy and the ambition to do it. And uh, of course, as the years go on, all of these things dwindle. So you mentioned you know you've you've heavily collaborated with uh, Cam or uh, yeah. Ian Esselmont uh, in the creation of your your canon. And there's there's so many still possible stories to be told over the years, if mm-hmm. you know, as you continue to write. Could you tell us a little bit how you keep everything straight between the two of you? Like, is there any uh, way you collaborate that Google Doc or something? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> no, we 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 meet up at least usually once a year um, at a conference or or a convention, and uh, we always sort of steal away at a certain point, usually late at night, and, and talk through what each has planned for for what's coming. And um, and because of that, we sometimes are able to do some kind of uh, crossover, at least echoing uh, each other's uh, storylines to some to, in some respect. And so that is is fairly helpful in sort of just sort of bearing in mind um, what the other person's up to. But I think what we both find is that one of us will write something, and we you know generally I don't read I don't get a chance to read uh, Cam stuff. Um, 
until everyone else does. Um, I know he's he's got some advanced readers and stuff, um, but he knows I don't like to read off of a computer screen for a novel, and he doesn't either. And neither of us um, really wants to bother printing out um, a, two, a 200 or 300,000 word novel. <laughs> yeah. So he doesn't see what I've come up with until the books come out, and I don't see what he's come up with until the books come out. And what happens then is, of course, um, well, we're just readers as well. So something will fire us up and get us excited in, in the other person's book. And then we'll, 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 we'll riff on that. We'll uh, individually, we'll run on that as, and come up with a, a kind of a twist to the entire storyline uh, of the other person, uh, what the other person has created. And so that is a kind of, it's a kind of a dialogue um, between us that, that is, is playing out in the novels themselves. So because the universe is so expansive, do you ever see the two of you kind of uh, doing what George Lucas did or, you know, opening up the Malazan world for other people to write in or like a Warhammer Forgotten Realms style thing? I don't no, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I mean, who knows what happens to, to the franchise once Cam and I kick off? I mean, anything could happen, right? So but I think right now, no, we, we because we game the history um, and we have that history sort of, I guess, set in our minds um, as something that, that the two of us uh, co-created quite accidentally in some ways, just through gaming. I think we're, we're, we're quite happy with just sort of uh, staying at that level. And, and so he's writing his books, and I'm writing mine. And, and I think, I, from what I understand, I know Cam's finishing a trilogy now on the origins of Empire. Uh, Dancer's Lament has just come out. And um, beyond that, I'm pretty sure he's interested in writing uh, outside the Malazan world. And I know I, I do the same as well. And we may be heading more in that direction uh, the older we get. Well, we do have a uh, Facebook group. It's called uh, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers. It's got about 900 members in there, and uh, many, if not most, are fans of yours. And uh, when we announced that you'd be coming on the show, we said, hey, Stephen Erickson's coming on the show. If you guys want to ask any questions, let us know, and we'll uh, ask the uh, top three or four uh, most liked questions. So we, we've got just a, a few questions here for you. Uh, the first one here is, well, it's from Tom Smith, and he asked, is there any room at your gaming table? But it didn't sound like there's a lot of gaming going on lately, so it might be a no. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> and I'm not one for, for doing, um, I know we talked about it at MizCon, the Missoula uh, convention, uh, which is very much a gaming convention, of me running a weekend or uh, a con-length uh, campaign, but I'm not really. I'm more for the long, the kind of the long haul style gaming. In a lot of ways, Cam and I were basically doing entire novels as campaigns, and so uh, I, I probably wouldn't do anything uh, short term or, or, or short duration like that. So unfortunately, um, no is the answer. Uh, next question: Wade Garrett asked, "What are you both reading and watching presently for entertainment?" All right. Um, I just finished um, Neil Stevenson's uh, Seven Eves, and um, quite an extraordinary novel. Before that, let's see, I was reading some Jack McDivitt, his uh, Thunderbird, uh, first contact novel. Uh, mostly I read science fiction. It, 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 the styles are, are distinct enough that I don't get any sort of crossover or influence in, in my writing. For a time there, I was reading all kinds of Star Trek because the willful child stuff is... is uh, riffing on, on the Star Trek universe. And so uh, I needed to re-familiarize myself with, with a lot of the, the early Star Trek stuff. So the Alan Dean Foster's uh, logs uh, that came out, the books that came out following um, the end of the series. So I've been reading that stuff. And in terms of watching television, um, 
Oh, let's see. Uh, Vikings, which is fantastic. Um, it has been um, since the first opening scenes of, of year one. Um, I think I think it's it's probably some of the best quasi fantasy um, television that's going on right now. My wife and I are also watching oh the Bernard Cornwall adaptation. Uh, this is the Last Kingdom, um, mm-hmm. all about Alfred the Great and um, Wessex and the, the Danes, and that that's been good fun. Then we did a marathon of The Good Wife, believe it or not, and. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, the writing was fantastic. The acting was superb. I've heard that. Yeah, it is. It is extraordinary that you had a series that, for at least six seasons now, has kept uh, that that high level of of, um, of writing and character development. But also, it's it's a story that that runs for the entire generation of of, of, of a woman. So you've got you've got a child, uh, the daughter of uh, the main character. You've got. Uh, a woman named Kalinda, who's a security investigator, or rather an investigator. And then you've got the main character, and then you've got uh, Lockhart, I think her name is, so the older woman, and then the two grandmothers. And so you've got every generation uh, of womanhood sort of portrayed in one in one series. And it's just so beautifully done. It's, it's extraordinary to, to see. And so... Yeah, we watched that uh, marathon pretty much three episodes a night kind of thing for, for a few months now. We finally finished. but um, So that, that's sort of where I'm at right now. Excellent. So lo- lots of sci-fi? I've recorded The Expanse. I haven't seen, I've seen maybe two episodes of it, but I haven't watched the, the full thing yet. So. But yeah, I do read sci-fi. Yeah. And then Sean Rodden uh, from the group asked, uh, with such complex storytelling, have you ever felt the need to modify your writing style to possibly appeal to more readers? Hmm. Well, I mean, Forge of Darkness is, is much more traditionally structured than, than the Malazan series. I mean, the opening scenes are, are very straightforward, and I think that, that structure is, is maintained throughout the, this trilogy. Whether that makes it more accessible or not, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say, because... Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, the language is, is a compounding um, aspect to things. So, uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I don't know why, but I, I learned how to write short stories, and so I treat novels as if they're just ex- extra long short stories. And so I have an expectation, I guess, in the reader that they're going to be they're, their radar is going to be you know turned on high. And, and so when I do things like, like foreshadowing or subtextual stuff and and that kind of thing, um, they're going to pick it up and. Even if they don't pick it up the first time around, hopefully they will the next time around. And I don't really want to change that because I've heard from so many fans that the rereadability for the Melanson series is, is very high. And that really pleases me because it would be awful if it was the opposite. Yeah, I've, I've seen so many different people on the internet talk about uh, they're rereading the series for the third or fourth time and they, they discover new things every time they reread it. So that that's really cool that people can buy a book or a series of books and just continue to keep getting new stuff from it over you know over and over again. Well, I have described it as the world's longest short story at three million years. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's basically how I wrote it. I really never learned how to write a novel. I just wrote it as, as uh, a short story. So each scene um, is written as you would a scene in a short story. And so it, it is dense, it is it's complex, uh, and there's a lot of shit going on. You know, anytime, anytime people are looking for uh, recommendations for dark, darker style fantasy, uh, your name often comes up. Well, that's, um, that's curious. Uh, you find it dark, do you? Well, I, mean, I, was writing, I was writing basically tra- tragedies with, with fantastic elements in it, but that's not the only thing that was going on there, obviously. Um, 
You know, I, I am curious about the notion of grimdark. I know I've written some stuff on Reddit regarding it, um, but I've sort of my initial concern. Uh, I think has gone away, um, and it partly was recognition that grimdark. There's really nothing new in grimdark. It's you know the master of grimdark was Robert E. Howard um, and his Conan novels and his Conan Conan stories, and so it's been around for a long time. Um, and so we're just seeing a, a more recent iteration of, of a trend in sword and sorcery, at least, um, that's been around since uh, the 20s and even the 30s. So, so the notion of grimdark is not, you know, it doesn't sort of get me fired up in any fashion or in, in any respect. I think it's, it's, it's simply a return to something that existed before. And, you know, Howard was was the, the grimmest and darkest of, of, of all of them. I mean, his very nihilistic notions regarding civilization. Um, and um, so when you see a lot of sort of nihilist fiction right now, and, and you know, it's identified as good and dark, well, I just sort of end up, I guess, shrugging for that. Um, that's been around for a long time. But curiously, I, don't, I never viewed uh, the Malazan series or anything I write as, as nihilistic in any fashion. I don't really see it as uh, being nihilistic at all. Um, there, there is a lot of violence in it, so maybe that's where people kind of mm-hmm. uh, get that idea. But I think, I think one thing that is often not mentioned as much is that dark subject matter often has humor also involved in it. And some people say your series is very humorous. Yeah. Would, would you agree with that notion that it's more humorous than it is dark? Uh, I think that one one is the answer to the other. Um, when I started out uh, at, at University of Victoria, um, I got I got into reading a lot of uh, fiction by veterans from the Vietnam War, and primarily people like Gustav Hasford and Tim O'Brien. And very early in the reading of that, it, it you know, became very clear to me that one of the ways in which people deal with stress and, and impossible situations and, and the trauma of, of war is through that fairly sardonic, fairly dark style of, of, of absurdity and humor. And that was certainly very prevalent in, in uh, a lot of that literature. And then, of course, Cam introduced me to Glenn Cook. And, and again, um, basically fantasy that was infused with, with that kind of Vietnam War literature mindset uh, for obvious reasons. And it was just fantastic to read. And that droll understatement seemed to be... Um, very much something that, that appealed to me when, when I sat down to write uh, this stuff. So there is that aspect. And then uh, on the more meta aspect, of course, we were we were kicking the shit out of all of the tropes of fantasy, uh, especially in Gardens of the Moon, which was kind of a primer for that. Um, so you set them up, um, and then you, you, you knock them down. And, um, and yeah, it, uh, Cam and I find that very amusing. But I suppose there's a, there's a cruel... You know, element to 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 what we're up to you know, at the same time, um, because we grew up with these tropes and, and we adored them. But at the same time, it, it struck me that just to repeat and, and to reiterate all the same tropes um, was just not was not going to be challenging enough. And so, we really wanted to take those apart and um, have some fun doing so. I mean, there you know, there's whole scenes in, in Gardens of the Moon that are, are are clear setups on on tropes. For example, Crocus. And his efforts to save uh, Lady Chalice right at the fet and, and at the end of the novel, and of course he doesn't get there in time, and she want, you know she saunters off with some other guy, and so it's sort of your, your your classic young hero trope going after the girl, and of course we just yeah, you know, I, we game that out in, in some respects as well. So that aspect of gaming 
where you have to entertain each other and entertain yourselves um, certainly played a huge role in, in, in the, the tone uh, of the Malazan series. So Gardens of the Moon, uh, I mean, it made a, a strong splash when it came out. It was nominated for World Fantasy Award for, I mean, people really dug the book. And when you got signed with your publisher, they actually asked you for, what, nine more books? No, it, it's a few years back now. But I think their understanding initially with Gardens of the Moon was that I was, I was looking at a trilogy. And um, I, didn't, uh, I didn't correct them on that assumption. And so when, we, when the first book came out and then... I was writing Deadhouse Gates while I was still working at the uh, head office of Toyota in, in the UK. And basically what happened was I went to uh, one of my first conventions and my editor um, was not able to attend. So I got sort of taken under wing by another publishing house. And they were very kind, very nice to me, took me out to dinner and all the rest. And as a consequence to all that, um, and I was quite innocent for, in terms of what they were up to. I had no idea. They just seemed very nice. But they, on the following Monday, made a strong bid to um, buy my next book, which was Deadhouse Gates. And because they had been asking me questions of what I had in mind, I, I said, well, basically, I, I, it's a 10-book series. And, um, but I'd only signed for the first, you know, for Gardens of the Moon and... Uh, my publishers had first writer refusal on, on the second book, Deadhouse Gates, which I was still just finishing. Anyway, so long story short, is they, they offered me uh, a deal that basically was for all nine books, but they didn't, they didn't sort of do it on a basis of being, being paid per book. I was basically given a, a salary for nine years on the assumption I would write one novel a year. Fortunately, my, my initial publishers, um, Bantam UK, matched the offer, so I got to stay with Bantam which delighted me. And so, yeah, I was basically on, on a kind of contract or a salary even. I, I got four paychecks a year um, and I, I was able to not have to work in any other aspect than just sit and write. And it was a dream come true. It was fantastic. But no, they, they didn't know that I, I had 10, 10 books planned. Not initially. You were like, hey, here's 10. And they're like, okay. <laughs> you got to be coy sometimes. I mean, that would have pretty much intimidated the hell out of them, I suspect. So you really realized the uh, writer's dream once the Gardens of the Moon finally hit, which took a while to hit. I mean, it was hanging out for nine years. Eight years, yeah. And it started out as um, a feature film script that Cam and I wrote. We were all into writing for film and television long before um, anything else. But in, in Canada, that that's that's a, a fool's game. It, it's, it's pretty depressing. Um, <laughs> and it seemed that for each thing we did, we were sort of a few years kind of ahead of the curve. And... and there's a real conservative element in, in the funding aspects of uh, Canadian film. And so we kept getting told that, you know, well, you can't do comedy horror. And um, this is long before, you know, Lost Boys, two, three years before Lost Boys. But we, we had a script that was comedy horror. And, and then, you know, nobody's interested in, in period pieces. And then, you know, Merchant Ivory comes out with a whole slew of uh, very popular uh, period pieces. Films. So we were always sort of a little bit ahead of the curve and, and getting nowhere with it. But we did write uh, Gardens of the Moon as a kind of, oh man, what, what was it? It was a kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark style sense of humor running through it. Um, and the storyline was basically the last part of, of Gardens of the Moon, the novel. Um, everything sort of with the Assassin's War on the rooftops going all the way to the, the Fet. And so that was our, our feature film script. Does that still exist today? Is no, there still a copy? Or? We lost it. <laughs> oh. It's long gone. <laughs> yeah. We've lost more than a few things. It's, it's, it's silly, but and you move around a lot. Things just disappear. 
So. Well, I mean, speaking of movies or TV, uh, a lot of people, when talking about you know epic fantasy on TV, you know, you have the Game of Thrones, you have the Shannara series now. A lot of people always say they want to see a Malazan TV show, but I think that would probably cost like seven hundred quadrillion dollars to, <laughs> to 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 do justice to it. Um, some people say it's almost like an unfilmable uh, series if you did it justice. I hope not. With all the different kind of things that would have to be uh, done to make it have the same sense of wonder as the books. Do do you see there being a chance of uh, a big screen adaptation or a small screen adaptation? Do do you think it would cost a ridiculous amount of money to to make to do it justice, or are there ways around that? Oh, there are always ways around it. Um, okay, I have to be very careful here because we are presently negotiating on on film and television, and um, oh. so I'm hoping within I'm hoping within the next month to be able to make an announcement in that regard. It, it, it's it's problematic because there's when you think of the the properties of the Malazan world, we're talking once I finish my contracts and Cam finishes his, but I think we're looking at thirty six properties. So there's a lot of there's a lot of material there, and um, and so it, it, in terms of negotiating, it's it's uh, well, it, it's great fun for the lawyers, put it that way. <laughs> but we, I mean, yeah, something may be announced hopefully fairly soon. Oh, great. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. That sounds uh, exciting. Well, you, you people now are, are the first person, first people to have heard this in a quasi-official fashion. So, <laughs> okay. we'll, cool. Just, we'll just let you know once, once things happen. Very cool. That's great because I think a lot of people do want to want to see that series and, and that, that medium. They just worried. I think a lot of fans worry about things being done justice nowadays. They, they really worry about their favorite series not being done correctly or whatever. Yeah, and it's 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 very difficult because you know I, I keep an eye say for uh, on on the Star Trek stuff. I'm, I'm a long time trekker, and um, I did see what happened with with Into Darkness, and it was it was pretty appalling. So and the, you know it, it splits viewers, and, and it's one of the issues is that people will have their opinions, and, and through long experience, you know they're disappointed more often than they are pleased, and so they may approach things from a fairly negative standpoint, uh, even before the thing sort of shows up on the screen. And that's fair enough, because, you know, we've all been burned by this. So it does pay to to be skeptical. Um, at the same time, you know, one hopes that, that if a project like that goes, then there there's sufficient commitment to it, um, to do it right. And, um, you know, I, Cam and I, are, we're not in any position to start writing scripts again, nor do I think would we want to. But at the same time, you know, it, it is it is a property that we would like to be proud of uh, in, in all its iterations. But, you know, I, I have seen on a lot of um, sites and, and various other places where this is, comes up as conversation. And most most Malazan readers seem to think that this is a, an unworkable project. So um, that's a bit of a challenge right there. And, um, I mean, I do recall being told back in Iowa that, you know, the notion of a a long, ambitious project was, was something that one should shy away from. Um, and I certainly took that as a challenge as well. So if people think it's it's unworkable, then that is a challenge. And, and I like challenges. You sort of have to, you can't view it as an adaptation. You have to view it as, it, it is another take on the same story, if you will. It's yeah. just it's just another, I mean, in some ways, the whole Malaysian series is all about point of view. And, and the the aspects of history that are 
questionable, if you will. Um, so it's all it's all down to interpretation. Uh, even the characters in the stories are interpreting events that they hear or see. And so if, if you view a series, for example, a Malazan series on television, then you have to think of it as a retelling of the story, but from slightly altered points of view. Um, maybe with the same characters, but it's, it's a different historian it's, and a different voice and a different narrative, if you will. And so um, adhering directly to every aspect of, of a novel's plot, as you say, it, it would be unworkable. There's just too much stuff going on there. And I, it would probably be a mistake to even attempt that. But to take the, the, the themes and uh, the emotional aspects of the story and run with those, well, that, that's, that's workable, in my, mind, in my view, anyways. Yeah, I think, I think seeing like the different scenes from, like say, the bridge burner's perspective, and then you could see from uh, Anamander Rake's perspective, you could kind of bounce around to different points yeah. of view, and it would be workable in that fashion. Yeah, I mean, my, my most ambitious notion regarding films uh, is something I've held on to for years, but it probably would break the bank, in fact. I'm sure it would. But, man, if somebody could do it, uh, it, it to me it makes sense. Um, and it would shift, it would shift the, the, the whole notion of, of filmmaking, uh, shift the paradigm entirely. And the idea was, basically, ever since television first arrived, it has taken the best from film and done wonderful things with it. But film has never taken the best out of television and done anything with it. And, and by that, I don't mean adaptations. I mean structurally. The thing that television does best of all is the series. The problem with Hollywood is that it designs its series continuations of all, you know, James Bond, all the rest, uh, Star Wars, you name it, on a kind of annual basis. So you get one, one a year. Occasionally that, that's slightly sort of truncated, but generally it's one a year. Um, and that has to do with, with the way the business is, 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 is basically run in Hollywood. Uh, it is very much episodic in, in its when you film and, and what you map out and all the rest. But imagine this. Imagine buying the rights, say, to the 10 books of the Malazan Book of the Fallen and then signing a contract with your actors for, oh, I don't know, five years. Okay? <laughs> so you commit them for the five years. And then you basically break up the filming of the entire, the entire 30 or the entire 10 books into three, into a trilogy per novel. Okay? So now you're talking 30 films. But here's the kicker. You release 10 a year. <laughs> wow. Think about it. <laughs> you release 10 a year. So you're basically almost almost every month another film comes out, like like in a television series. It's, it's slightly stretched out. But imagine the, the, the lineups you would get potentially, if it's well done. I mean, if, if it's well written, well directed and all the rest. People would be pretty eager for the next episode. And then, of course, when because you're doing 10 a year, you're basically doing three books plus the opening the opening film of the of the fourth book uh, in the at first year, and then the second year you're doing the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and so on. So you got a, you got a teaser, and the advantage, of course, is that everything rolls into everything else. So you're looking at almost three years of a film a month, but then you're done. It's done. Yeah, I think that works as kind of like in in our society now. You know, Netflix is a big thing, and sure. as far as like people binge watching episodes and. As soon as they finish been watching the series, they're like, "Oh shit, I want to see the next season," <laughs> but the next season yeah, yeah. doesn't exist. Exactly. But this supply, this is a good way of supplying the demand. 
Yeah, I'd never be able to sell that to anybody. I mean, I, I, I could see the lawyers, you know, running for the hills as soon as I started talking about that. But I think it's feasible. And I, I think your budget goes down, actually, rather than up per film. Because once you've created the sets and the costumes and all the rest, those carry on into, into the subsequent films. So your initial outlay is big. And then it starts diminishing at that point. At which point, by the time you get to the end of the three years, you should be making some fair money, I would think. But hey, I could be wrong. Somebody will steal that and use it for something else. (laughs) Speaking of expanding properties within the Malazan universe, any talk or rumor or plans for a RPG system that readers can play in the future at all? Cam and I have talked about working on something. Um, It it ties in with the the long-standing desire to create a a kind of um, encyclopedia Malazica because we have notes that we've, you know, finally have gotten archived and, and we need to maybe take a, a good long look at them and see what we can put together. And then, of course, it struck us that, well, if we're doing a, uh, an encyclopedia, if you will, then that is that is your your foundation for, for a game world book. And so then we talked with uh, Steve Jackson because and, and, we didn't want to create a whole new system. Um, we had been approached by a number of people all of whom sort of were applying the 20D or, or their own their own unique systems. But we really did our gaming through GURPS, and we loved the freewheeling aspect of GURPS. And so it just struck us, you know, why, why reinvent the wheel? Um, so we did contact Steve Jackson, and uh, he's certainly, I think, amenable to us doing something within the GURPS system, but um, basically creating it ourselves. And so there was talk of um, sort of, crowdsourcing listing or whatever you want to call that that kickstarter would be great. kickstarting yeah um we just haven't actually gotten around to to uh assembling the site and all the rest and and right now i mean cam's in the middle of the second book of his trilogy um i've got a third willful child to write plus i've got the third novel in, in the carcanus and so we are just we're swamped <laughs> um and so getting to this thing is, is always problematic well i'm pretty sure if you uh, I'm almost 100% sure I can give you my Philip uh, guarantee that if you kickstarted that, it would get funded like fairly Seven quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would, but then, you know, you still need to get, you know, you have to sort of get the right people on board because, you know, yeah. Cam and I, yeah, we'd be happy to write little aspects for atmosphere and the rest for, for the game book, conversation, dialogue between characters, that kind of thing, um, just as examples within, within the game book. But um, somebody else is going to have to put it together. Because we just don't have the time for that. So if, if, if certainly if somebody out there is, is prepared to take uh, the basic GURP structure and um, and start sort of planning things out, uh, well, by all means, get in touch with us. Um, so I mean, either either on Cam's site or mine, um, stevenerickson.com or whatever it's called, or Cam, Ian Lamont's. By all means, uh, it, it's just it's a thing that's going to sort of require a lot of work and. Um, that's one of the challenges because I guess Kickstarter design is designed to pay you to do that work, but uh, until you can do that, um, that's a lot of volunteer work for somebody. It's not fair in that respect. People need to actually get paid for their work. I mean, the, yeah, definitely. The Malzan, uh, you know, wiki and all this kind of stuff, and there's just a huge amount of fan support for this series and fan art and. All sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, so, the art's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and and the, and the trash metal bands and all the rest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Alan and Brood, all the rest. Yeah, it's cool. So I think there are fans that uh, you know, if they if they know this this is kind of in the works, they would probably be more than willing to figure out something to to help out and get the ball rolling. 
you know, I, in terms of um, computer savvy, I, I'm non-existent. I'm a Neanderthal, so I'm not the person to to set up something like that, and, and uh, nor is Cam for that matter. Um, so yeah, we, we we definitely need people with a, a lot greater facility um, and, and talent and ability in terms of setting up a proper site in that regard. But I mean, it, it, yeah, it's it's. It's a thing that needs a structure and it needs organization. And um, so while, while we're happy to uh, entertain the idea, we have yet um, been able to find the time or the energy to do it. It's that life, well, life block thing. Yeah, more <laughs> life block. <laughs> but I mean, a lot of it is, 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 is writing. So, I mean, yeah. if you guys want more books, then leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's, it's stuff that, that needs doing. All right. Well, we are just about out of time. We've talked a lot about uh, RPGs and gaming, it being the foundation of the series and possible discussion maybe down the road of a, of a new series. So we thought we would end our conversation with you today, Mr. Steven Erickson, by having you roll up a D&D, D20, RPG, tabletop type of character. Maybe give it a gender, race, class, maybe a weapon, some armor. Just maybe develop a character for us. Um, be brilliant and creative and, and have a, a fun little segment here at the end of, the, of, of our conversation here. The last time I was in somebody's, well, not the last time, but I, I, recall, I do recall being in somebody, somebody's campaign that they wanted me to write up two characters. So I did. And um, they ended up having to shut the campaign down after about weeks because those two characters were Bocalane and Corporal Brooch. Oh, okay. Necromancers. They have novellas dedicated. So insane that uh, the guy just gave up on me. So, I I, I mean, it did occur to me to to write up, to create a 300-pound thief. I think as soon as I think about that, I realize I've already done it. And that's one of the problems is that Cam and I have really, we kind of did all this stuff. And and that thief was Manasque and he shows up in Cam's novels. Um, And Cam writes him very well. But, but certainly the notion of a thief who, instead of picking the lock, walks through the door uh, <laughs> physically, that always appeals to me. Um, mind you, uh, I, I do recall another character who he's about four foot two, and he, he basically, this is a character I wrote up, imagine a little guy with an Art Garfunkel-style haircut, and he was a, um, uh, an illusionist. And that's one of the things I used to love playing was, was illusionist characters. So he was good fun, but he would do illusions like, uh, backfiring his, his own spells and uh, his head would blow up. And, you know, and the assumption is, you know, nobody's going to imprison a body because it's, it, it's a headless body and it's lying in the street. But um, if you run up against the wrong GM, uh, as we did, um, sure enough, I got arrested anyways. So I don't know. I don't know. I, the headless body got arrested. There it is. They couldn't execute him, though. I mean, they couldn't cut his head off. Well, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there I was in, in manacles in the cell. Let's uh, try to do a quick character here and see what we come up with. So, first, uh, gender, male or female? or uh, Let's make male. Okay, race, from the Malazan universe. From the Malazan universe. Um, all right, Jagut. Jagut, okay. How about class or job? What kind of job or remote class would they have? Uh, class, class. Um, this is AD&D stuff, isn't it? Or D&D and stuff. All right, I would guess uh, sorcerer. Okay, and then where where is this Jagut sorcerer from? From oh, I don't know, Seven Cities, Jagut Dan. Okay, and then what kind of weapons, if any, does he have? Does he use no, weapons or not? No weapons. No weapons. Okay. No. And then armor or clothing, if any, he could be naked if you want him to be naked. So <laughs> no, I mean enough clothes to keep the insects off him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No armor. 
I do remember that one character was covered in flies in one uh, in one of the books. <laughs> <laughs> Opening of Dead Hell's Gates. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good. That's a good disguise. <laughs> okay, then uh, Warren, if any. So, what Warren does he use to access his sorcery? Uh, let's go. Um, he's jagged, so it's usually um, it's ice aspected. But let's let's create some variation here. Um, let's do illusion. Okay, cool. Mianus, I think it's called. Mianus, okay. And then any physical f- features that are worth noting or distinguishing uh, scars or mouth mouth formations? Uh, no, nothing, nothing obvious. Okay, and then. How about any personality quirks, any kind of weirdness to his personality? OCD or anything like that? Um, well, he's Jagood, so yeah, they're all like that. Um, <laughs> OCD is, is fairly accurate. Yeah. Uh, I should backtrack a bit. You said that uh, in terms of physical uh, characteristics, he's rather flat at the moment. <laughs> rather flat. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll explain later. <laughs> okay. Keep going. And then uh, last would just be a name. Oh, a name. Um, I have to come up with a name? What do you think? I write stories or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> One of my personal favorite names is Tool. I really like that name. You like Tool? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's call him Scratch. 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 Okay. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for making a special Grim Tidings podcast Malzan character <laughs> for us. Well, I, I mean, if you're going to run with him, um, you have to realize that other characters are going to have to uh, free him because he's he's basically trapped underneath a giant rock. Oh, probably oh I don't know two or three tons, and he's been there for oh I don't know a hundred thousand years. Hence the oh, name okay. Scratch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thanks for doing that, Stephen. It's the first time we've we've rolled up a character. I think we're going to do it more in the future, but uh, we appreciate being able to take from that creative well that you spoke of earlier, just just at least for a moment, and and, and roll up this character. So we appreciate. It. Oh, no problem, no problem. Maybe we can get yeah. some scratch fan art, and we can we can post it up yeah. on. A <laughs> well, you on just our sort of, yeah, you you need a, a nice picture of a big slab of rock, and then you can. <laughs> You can put some fingers out from one edge. He's been. Well, I'm a shitty. I'm a shitty artist, but I could do that. I think. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, we can all do it. Well, Fall of Light is the second book in the Carcanus trilogy, and that drops April 26th to readers across the galaxy. So be sure to pick that up. Stephen Erickson, thanks so much for joining us. For people who want to find you online, they can go to stephenerickson.com. Yep. Yeah, right. I, and when people send emails, they they often preface them by saying, I don't know if this reaches Stephen Erickson, but be assured they all do. I can't thank you enough for taking the time, uh, an hour out of out of your uh, weekend here to uh, jump on Skype and hang out with us. It's been an honor just to get to chat with you, and uh, best of luck with you with uh, the sci-fi novel you've got going on, book three as well coming up, uh, and all the cool TV and RPG and awesome Ericsson stuff that's coming up. So many cool things. Everybody keep their fingers crossed on the, on the, uh, the, the television film thing. Definitely. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You can find us online at facebook.com slash the Grim Tidings Podcast or on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. And if you like this show, please share it and leave a review. And be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Yeah.